Well, good morning to you, ladies and gentlemen. What a great joy it is to have you with us. We're coming to you live from our Cornerstone Auditorium. My message today is entitled, Are We in Pre-Revival Days? Question mark. Something that we need to answer. In 1995, uh, I want to give you, by the way, uh, a bit of a recitation of our church history because there are many new people in the church and you probably do not know the backstory. You do not know the price that was paid to be where we are today. And I think it's important for me to just tell some of the old stories. Amen. In 1995, we had the privilege of hosting what was an open heaven over Cornerstone for a period of about five months. Those five months were like heaven on earth. And our services, which normally would last for about two hours, extended to about five hours. And the amazing thing was nobody was complaining. Nobody wanted to leave the services. The intensity of the presence lifted up about two, five months later, and things started returning to some kind of a normality, but not before we saw our attendance increase by about 30%. And more importantly, it gave us such a hunger for his presence, such a hunger for, his, for the supernatural. It was on Father's Day in 1994 that God visited a little church in Toronto called the Airport Vineyard Church, and it exploded into what is commonly known as the Father's Blessings or the Toronto Blessings. And one of the most vivid expressions of the visitation was the uh, phenomena of holy laughter. And that outpouring basically renewed the spirit of joy in the church. Do we need more joy in the church? Yeah, I think too many Christians uh, have constipated looks on their faces. But uh, I believe that uh, we need to have more joy uh, in the church. And were there things that were controversial? Yep, you bet. But God's presence was undeniable. When I first heard about the holy laughter, I had my doubts. But I tell you this, I also knew that this was from God, uh, and I wanted it, and, and so I sought for it with all my heart, and each time I heard that somebody else had received the blessing, man, I just got more hungry, all right? I cried out to the Lord, Lord, I want this with all my heart. Six months passed, and I got so desperate, man, and I think desperation is a good thing, eh? amen? And then uh, Rodney Howard Brown was uh, coming to our part of the world in Brisbane. And so my wife and I and some friends, we caught a plane and uh, catch, to catch the meetings up there. And I remember the first night, man, it was just great, all right? All sorts of things were happening. People were on the floor crying, laughing, uh, weeping and shaking, and some were even howling. Uh, and, um, and everything was happening around me, but nothing was happening to me. Nothing was happening in me. Well, the second day, same thing happened. All kinds of things were happening around me. Nothing was happening in me and happening to me. And boy, I really got hungry and I really got desperate, right? On the third evening, we, the, the organizers shifted the meetings to the main convention hall in the city because of the swelling crowds. And I remember sitting in the bleachers with our, with our company of friends and right in the nosebleed section, all right? Just, because, just before the meeting started, a pastor walked by and he recognized me and we, we talked for a few moments and he said, hey, Pastor Young, have you received the blessing? I said, no, I've not. He said, here's the key. He said, you've got to forget everything else. You've got to shut out everything. Don't spectate and don't be distracted by what's happening in you. Keep your eye on Jesus and keep focus on him. Well, I thank him for his advice and the meeting started about 10 to 15 minutes into the uh, sermon. I don't know what happened, but about a three meter radius from where I was sitting, 
the Holy Spirit just opened like the windows of heaven and poured out the Spirit. And everybody in my section just broke out in, in laughter. And then the whole stadium erupted. I mean, man, we had a meeting. And I was filled with the Holy Spirit. I was filled with joy. And the, the, the wells of salvation just broke open. And this joy just bubbled up. And it was wonderful. It was just absolutely wonderful. When I arrived back in Singapore, the first thing I did was to gather all the leadership. Uh, we had about 10, 15 leaders at that time, key leaders in I wanted to tell them what I experienced in, uh, in Brisbane. And so we gathered in the living room in my home and uh, they were sitting around and I, I shared with them my experience and then showed them a little video of uh, Howard Brown's preaching. And suddenly as we were watching, I heard a plonk. And I turned around and this uh, couple of my leaders had just fallen to the ground and they were swooning. I mean, they were laughing, they were full of joy. And then suddenly, bam, something happened in that room and they were crying, they were shaking. Exactly the same things that happened in Brisbane. Exactly the same things that happened. Uh, the same power, the same expressions of, of the manifestations. I didn't touch anybody. I didn't pray for anybody. I didn't lay hands on anybody. God just stepped into the room. And uh, we've, by the time we finished the meeting, it was four hours later, we carried people out to the, uh, to the uh, road to get a taxi for them because they were so intoxicated with the Holy Spirit. And I couldn't wait for the Sunday service. Man, I didn't know what God was going to do. All right, Sunday came and all heaven broke loose. Again, same thing. I shared my testimony, what happened to me in Brisbane, showed them a video. Bam, the presence of God just comes in, came in. And uh, our services would last for about five hours every weekend. And people were so intoxicated with the Spirit and they could not walk or could not speak. One young lady, about 18, 19 years of age, was speaking in tongues for five hours. She couldn't speak English and she all she could do was speak in tongues and uh, carried the afterglow of the Spirit 12 hours hours later just so intoxicated with the presence of God and many of them were so overwhelmed in the spirit that they had to be ferried home and others were on the floor the whole time and God did some marvelous things for us and the intensity went on for month after month after month but it started slowly waning and over the few next few months every person I laid hands upon would just break out in laughter with joy uh, would, they would shake they would cry there was something uh, that I caught in in Brisbane hallelujah and it was then that I discovered a couple of things about revival. Number one, the anointing, the blessing, the presence, whatever you want to call it, is transferable. I could carry it with me. I received it in Brisbane. I brought it back here in Singapore. Same power, same anointing that I experienced there. I saw happen in our church here in Singapore. And during that whole time, whenever I got invited to another church to speak, same experiences. I would preach and suddenly, bam, the same things would happen. Same manifestations. And I tell you this, this anointing is transferable. You can carry it everywhere. You go to your workplace, schools, your offices, your homes, hospitals. And I tell you this, this can really go viral. This thing can really go viral. When you are so filled with the presence of God, trust me, you will start to have an effect of people around you without you having saying one word. Come on. The Apostle Peter carried so much of the presence of God that he would walk by uh, the street and they would line the streets with the sick people. They knew what time Peter would walk by. And they would line the streets with people hoping that Peter's shadow cast over them would heal them. Now shadow has got no substance. So it wasn't Peter's shadow that was healing them. What was healing them was the heightened expectancy that God was going to do something as Peter walked by. So as Peter, as people came into proximity within the zone that Peter was, they began to be influenced by the power of God radiating from him. Come on, we got to believe God for something more. And I believe with all my heart that God is going to so fill us with the Holy Spirit that we are going to see the 
same kinds of manifestation in our lives. People, we're going to walk into a room and people are going to sense his presence, his conviction in a way they've never had it before. The story of Smith Wigglesworth on one occasion boarded a train to, from Bradford to travel to London. He was in a compartment with five other people and as his custom was, he opened his Bible, started reading the Bible and prayed silently. He never spoke a word to anybody, never tried to initiate a, a, a conversation. About 30 miles out of London, he, he got up and went to the restroom and when he got back, a man beside him was shaking and he said to Mr. Wigglesworth, he said, I don't know what is it about you. He said, I don't know what you carry, but as I sat beside you, I, I, I know I'm, I'm full of fear, a terrible fear has gripped me, a terrible conviction has gripped me, I'm afraid I'm going to die. And then every single one of the passengers said exactly the same things and then Wigglesworth explained to them what conviction was and uh, the way of salvation and right there in that train compartment all of them knelt down on the floor and accepted Jesus as their savior. Come on, I'm telling you, I believe that we can be so saturated with his presence that people around us would be influenced by it without us having say a single word. Come on, we got to believe God for more. We just got to believe God for more. The second thing that I discovered is that God gave us the privilege of hosting his presence for five months. It was a great privilege. I, I think every time God allows us to host something, whether it's the Kingdom Invasion Conference, whether it's the uh, CGN Conference, whether, whatever we do, every time God gives us the privilege of hosting something, He knows that He can count on us to do that. But I tell you, nothing beats hosting the presence of God. Come on. Nothing beats hosting the presence of God. And although it wrecked all our plans and our programs, no one was complaining. You know, when revival comes, trust me, it will upend all your program schedules and time. And we must be willing to bend and go with the flow. The amazing thing was no one had any issues with the length of the meetings. We all were learning that you cannot rush God. Amen. He has to be wooed. But we, are, but we, also, but we must be convinced. This is my message today. You got to be con cornerstone. You got to be convinced that this is his will for us. That revival is his will for this church. We cannot fall between two opinions any longer. Do you want revival? Yes or no? Do you want revival? Do you want to host the presence of God? Yes or no? And if the answer is yes, then we have to give our hearts fully to it. Amen. We must stop vacillating. Revival must be the number one agenda of all that we do in this church. And we have many wonderful programs in this church right now. And all of them are good. All of them are necessary. But it cannot substitute our pursuit for revival. Our church was birthed for this reason. We were birthed to carry revival fire. Hallelujah. Blood and fire is our symbol. Woo! Amen. Hallelujah. In Psalm 78 and verses 67 and verse 70. And this is the psalm of Asaph. He said, moreover, he rejected the tent of Joseph and did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. And he built this sanctuary like the heights, like the earth, which has been established forever. And he chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. Now, Psalm 78 is a long psalm, and basically it is a recitation of the history of Israel and the journey that they took in the wilderness for 40 years. When we come to verses 67 to 70, the, the writer, songwriter, summarizes the psalm by indicating God's choices. Now watch this very carefully. The first thing that God chooses is the tribe. He rejected the tribe of Joseph. He rejected the tribe of, uh, rejected the tribe of Ephraim, by, which by the way were the two most prominent and largest tribes in Israel. 
And we often make the mistake to think that God is drawn to the biggest churches. That's a, that's a fallacy. That's not often the case. Amen. We often th- uh, think that big is better. And again, that's not always true, especially in the kingdom. He chose the tribe of Judah. And I'll tell you this, my friends, the Judah anointing tribes, hallelujah, must start leading. God is not going to do anything until the Judah tribes rise. Amen. The churches with the Judah anointing must lead. Amen. And our tribal anointing is an important part of who we are because it determines our inheritance and it determines our function as well. The second thing is that he chooses the place, right? So he chooses first the tribe, then he chooses the place. And of course, he chose Mount Zion to be the place where he would dwell himself. There are many dwelling places of God in Israel. And like there are many churches, uh, you know, but God chose Zion, right? In Psalms 87 and verse 2, it says, The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Zion is not just a physical place. It is a physical place, but it's also a spiritual place. And I think it represents the highest aspirations that God has for his people. That's something that we all have to attain to. Amen. Then he chooses the leader. All right. So he chose David. He chose a man after God's, his own heart. So watch this. Please understand this. Right? God chooses first a tribe. Then he chooses a place. And then he chooses the leader. In his divine plan, he chose Israel. Then he chose, he, uh, he, he ordained a land for them to dwell in. And then he raised up Abraham so that his plans would, would be initiated. You know, David was a, my favorite character in the Bible. What a remarkable man he was, man. He, this guy had an endless fascination of God. And he has his longing and passion for the presence of God is unsurpassed in, in the Bible, okay? You just read the Psalms, you know, David, all David wanted to do was to stay in the presence of God. Uh, several years ago, I met, one many years ago, sorry, I met with a wonderful man, Brother Dinner Karan from India, great apostle. And I read his, one of his books that he wrote, and in one of his books, he had this vision of heaven. And in this vision of heaven, he saw uh, a courtyard very much resembling a courtyard in, in modern-day Israel. And he asked the Lord who, in the vision, he said, Lord, what is this place? And the Lord says, this is a, a place that I created for my servant David. Because when he was on the earth, he loved my presence. And so I, this, I created a place that resembled what he was so comfortable with in heaven as a way of rewarding him. Come on. I love that. I, I, you know, I love that. I tell you, David was all hard for God. Amen. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, we see the longings of David. We, he cried out, how long uh, can the ark of the Lord, uh, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? But make no mistake about it. If we are going to see the ark of the presence come to us, if we're going to see the presence of God being hosted here in Cornerstone, there's a price to be paid. And it cost David to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to, to Zion. You know that, right? It was in the house of Obed-Edom for about 100 days. And then they brought the Ark out of the house to bring it to Zion. And every six steps, they killed an ox. They killed a bull. Every six steps, they killed a bull. Every six steps, they killed a bull. Man, that was a whole lot of bull. <laughs> they killed a lot of bull that day. And... Uh, and of course, they had the sacrifice, it was a burnt offering. And so if you had a helicopter looking down from the house of Obed-Edom to Zion, all you will see is a trail of blood, smoke, and fire. Man, that's awesome. And uh, every six steps, one sacrifice. It's about four kilometers, five kilometers. I've been to the area of Obed-Edom in, in Israel, so I know the, the distance. 
And uh, so by the time they came to Zion, they erected a tent and he put the Ark of the Covenant and the glory, the glory of God descended upon the place and David could fulfill his heart's desire to behold the beauty of the Lord. You know, Catherine Booth said it's better to, to uh, it, if, if we are going to better the future, then we have to disturb the present. Come on. <laughs> now, uh, the third thing that we need to do is we needed to learn how to sustain a move of God. I think that's the most important thing, right? The early church had an ongoing revival that lasted many, many decades, and they turned cities upside down. But how in the world do you sustain a move of God for such a long period of time? Well, Acts chapter 2 gives us the amazing key. It says that the disciples met daily. Woo! Right there is the key, man. It's the daily abiding, all right? We develop daily, not in a day. And what they did do when they got together daily, four things. They prayed, huh? they gave themselves to the word, they fellowship, and they broke bread with one another. It's communion, right? What they did on a daily basis sustained a move of God for many years. Come on, man, my friends. When we first had the outpouring in 1995, we, I remember we organized prayer meetings on a daily basis. We crammed that prayer room in 764 Mountbatten Road. Some of you remember that. And we worshiped, prayed, waited upon the Lord. But I think we got sloppy. I got sloppy, all right? We stopped the daily prayer meetings. And I suspect that that sort of brought the move of God to a grinding halt. You know, in 1948, uh, uh, there was a mighty revival that broke out in the Outer Hebrides, an island, series of islands off the coast of Scotland. And the main spark of the revival was a man called Duncan Campbell, very powerful uh, man of God, very powerful move of God. Just Google the Hebrides revival and just read. It's an amazing, fascinating story. But the backstory is important, right? What precipitated the revival was that the condition in the Hebrides was so bad so bad, people were all getting drunk in, in bars and taverns, and no one was coming to church. Seven men got together and bound themselves in a holy covenant to pray until something happens. They met in a barn three times a week and sometimes would pray four or five hours into the early mornings, and they would cry out to God. Two sisters, very powerful intercessors, very old, heard about this prayer. They joined their prayers with them, and I'll tell you this, the rest we know. It's history. A grand revival broke, broke out in Barvas. Barvas, I like that. And it lasted for five years. And there was a documentary done uh, by several researchers many years later. Many years later. And they managed to track one of the seven men <clears throat> in the revival and, um, of the original prayer group. And I watched this on, on the documentary. And they asked him if he could tell them something about the revival. And tears in his eyes, tears in his eyes. He said the one great mistake they made was they were so caught up with the effects of the revival that they forgot to protect the cause of the revival. They forgot to protect the cause of the revival, which was establishment of righteousness and holiness. If we don't get it, man, we're going to make the mistake again and again. The effects of the revival, the shaking, the crying, the laughing, the dramatics, and all that is good, my friends. But we must make sure we protect the fire and the holiness of the revival. You know, in every revival, we must ask, what is God seeking to accomplish? It's more than just goosebumps and the swooning and the laughing and the falling over. It's a revival is a heightened sense of the presence of God. Amen. It's a church, not a, not a church full of people. It's a people full of God. Revival is God bringing the church up to speed with what He's doing. It's an accelerated sense of God's presence uh, in our, and purposes in our generation. It's a preparation for the grand harvest at the end of the age. And I'll tell you this, I say all this. I say all this because I'm 
convinced that we are at the cusp of another great move of the Holy Spirit. I feel it in my bones. I feel it in my gut. I feel it in my spirit. And I tell you this, I see people all around this nation beginning to gather in small groups, crying out to God. They want more. They want more of God. And I tell you without any fear of contradiction, I believe with all my heart that God has chosen this community of people. Cornerstone, you. He's chosen you to be a part of the next great move of God. And I believe that he has chosen this congregation to precipitate something of the power of God in our midst, in this nation. And I know that there are other churches, but that's not my business. My business is making sure that we carry the fire here in Cornerstone. Hallelujah. That's my business. He's chosen this place as well. You know, I, I don't know what is it about the Orient Katong. I, I just, I know God has chosen this particular place as he's chosen other places as well. Uh, those of you who are new in the church, when the, when the Spirit of God broke out in the, in, uh, in the uh, late 1990s um, in the church here, we had sometimes three weeks of just intense presence of God where people got up to the altar and cried and cried. Never saw people cry so much. And the altar was filled with tears. In every service, we had to mop and clean up the altar because of the, the next service coming in. It was so much. People cried so much at the altar. I'm telling you, this altar is soaked with the tears of people crying out for a move of God and there's something about this place that God has chosen and I believe that God's going to lead us to other places where he says I've chosen this place and this is where I will put my name upon hallelujah amen but the key is to make sure we keep the fire burning because if we keep the fire burning the fire will keep us burning amen now I want to take this plane to a landing and I want to give you a, a bit of a history lesson uh, please don't, I know young people don't like history. They think it's all about dead people and useless dates. No, if you don't know your history, you will not have a bearing for the future. Trust me. It's like a compass, all right? It points north and it's very important for us to understand history. You read the Bible, it's all history. It's all history. When Peter got up on the day of Pentecost, he didn't preach. He just recited Old Testament verses and then he says, this is that which the prophet Joel said, bam! And then the Holy Spirit comes. 3,000 people got saved. Amazing, all right? And so let me give you a working model of the his from a historical perspective. Now, if you're a member of Cornerstone, then you ought to be familiar, at least in some way, with the Welsh revival. Now, I know that some people say, well, what's all this about Wales? What is all this about Wales? Wales became part of our legacy when we redeemed the Bible College in the year 2012, right? God connected us spiritually with the nation. You know, I used to say that Singapore is the land of my birth, but Wales is the land of my adoption. And I think that in the season, this season of my life, it's going to be more pronounced. But I've always been fascinated with the Welsh Revival, especially with Evan Roberts. I, when I was a young believer, many, many years ago, boy, I tell you, the Welsh Revival would captivate me. I would read books on it. I would, in fact, I'm still studying books on uh, the Revival because I believe that there's something that's going to happen here in this nation that's going to be very much mirroring, mirroring what ha happened in Wales in 1904. There's a deep connection, I believe, with Wales, with Israel, and Singapore. This is Tri, uh, tr trinity of nations that I believe that there's an unusual connection in the spirit. Amen. Now, Wales is the land of periodic revivals, and her most famous revival was 1904-1905. And this revival is of special importance because of the influence and the power it generated. You know, it crossed over the Atlantic to touch 
the Azusa uh, meetings and of course the Azusa Street Revival was uh, precipitated very much so by the Welsh Revival and then out of that came all the great denomination, Pentecostal denominations. It went to India, it went to uh, North Korea, it went to all parts of the world. It was an amazing revival. But um, it impacted all of Wales, from the north to the south, from the east to the west, from the coal mines of Wales, all the way to the highest echelons of society. Everyone was touched by the revival, every town, every hamlet. Crime was almost non-existent. Rugby matches were cancelled. Come on. Woo! I tell you this, when rugby matches are cancelled in Wales, you know God is doing something. I, I read the story of one famous match that they were having and Wales was playing another country. And uh, this is way back in the revival days, 1904. And the crowd was getting excited because Wales was leading and suddenly they broke out in a hymn. A hymn of the Welsh revival, a hymn of the Wales uh, legacy, a Christian hymn. And they sang and you know, I read in the story, the presence of God comes down on the entire stadium and the rugby players knelt down while they were playing. They knelt down and lifted their hands and had a prayer meeting right during the rugby match and they had to cancel it. Come on, hallelujah. Woo, hallelujah. Man, I'll tell you some of the amazing stories in the Welsh Revival. I, I saw in a town, uh, you know, in the town that there was a rugby uh, club. And you know, from the 1800s, all the names of the captains are listed in the club. You know, this in 1895, who was the captain? In 1896, who was the captain? In 1897, who was the captain? And then it came 1904, 1905, 1906. They had all matches cancelled because of the revival. <laughs> this is on the sign, on the notice board of the, the rugby club. Come on, I tell you this. Woo! Uh, when revival breaks out, watch it. I tell you this, you're going to have Christians singing in the MRT stations, man. They're going to sing everywhere. They're going to sing and they're going to praise God because it is going to be so prevalent and nothing is going to stop this. Nothing is going to stop God's plan and purposes. All of Wales was ablaze with fire of revival and His presence. You know, the spark of the Welsh revival was a young coal miner called Evan Roberts. Before the revival, he had marvelous experiences in God. Five hours every night, he would be taken up by the Spirit into a wonderful expense, and he would hear things and see things that he was not allowed to, to recount. Um, and he prayed, and he said, Lord, would you close the gates of hell over Wales? And God responded by closing the, the, the gates of hell. And in the first three months of the revival, over 100,000, well over 100,000 people were swept into the kingdom of God in a powerful demonstration of his presence and conviction. They called him a particle of radium that never that drove sleep awake. Hallelujah! <laughs> I tell you this: when revival comes, there's not going to be one sleepy person in the church. Amen. Uh, but you know, before we can talk about that revival, let me just give you a bit of a history lesson, because there were three revivals preceding this, and I want to lay a foundation for the grand revival. Right? We, I want to. I just want to show you from history what God did to prepare the hearts of the people for this amazing move of God, right? And I want you to see the build-up of the move of God because revival doesn't just happen, you know? A field of wheat doesn't just uh, appear overnight and nobody knows where it came from. Somebody plowed, somebody planted, somebody watered, somebody tended, and then they waited for the harvest, right? Uh, revival is not spontaneous combustion. It is, it is ignited. Somebody, there was a spark, there was a, a firebrand, hallelujah. And so whenever you see a move of God in any place, you always understand that behind that move of God is a person or a group of people that cried out and laid a hold of God, amen. In every account of revival, whether biblical or historical, had somebody 
who paid the price and it always starts in the heart of a person and that fire goes to another person and another person and that's how revival uh, becomes um, uh, a pandemic. <laughs> pandemic, yes. Hallelujah. <sighs> you know, preparation is a big thing with God. It is. Why would God give revival to an unprepared people, right? The future belongs to the prepared. Amen. There are people asking God for revival, but are doing nothing to prepare for it. And we cannot be that people, man. If revival does come, what's going to happen? Where are the people going to sit? Who's going to disciple them? Who's going to nurture the young believers? Where are the necessary materials? Are the leaders trained? Are the cell groups prepared for it? Because in the early church, you remember, one day they had 120. The next day they had 3,120. Come on. How do you handle that? If the people are not trained, there are people asking for revival that would not know what to do if 100 people join the church next week. Come on. So preparation is vital and it must take place in the hearts of the individual first. We must allow the Holy Spirit to redden our hearts. Amen. Some people are afraid of the cost of revival. Trust me, I'm, not, I'm afraid of the cost of not having a revival. I don't want God to bypass us. This is one of my great prayers every day. Not every day, but I pray this quite a bit. Lord, don't bypass us. You can use anybody else, but please choose Cornerstone. Amen. And uh, uh, let me just give you the three revivals very quickly. I, I'll land the plane here. In, in 1737, there were two men, Howell Harris, Daniel Rowlands. They led what was called the Welsh Methodist Revival. Both men were inspired by Jonathan Edwards uh, of his revival in New England, right? This revival uh, sparked two things. Number one, a new movement was formed. This is the Calvinist Methodist Church, which gave the church, the nation of Wales, structure and organization, right? And it's interesting that every time a revival comes and goes, at the end of it, many new ministries are, are birthed and many new great ministries are born. The second thing that it gave Wales was its hymnology. And up to that point, all the songs that they were singing, all the hymns came from England. And now all of a sudden, they, were, they, they had their own hymns. And I tell you this, the Welsh people sing like nobody else can sing, right? They, 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 um, they're rich beyond compare. Amen. And then in the early 1800s, about 1821, 1822, there was another wave of the Holy Spirit. And this time, it was the teachers that were raised up. And they gave the Welsh people the theology, theology, right? Um, an understanding of the Word of God. Then in 1859, there was a third revival that broke out. And what this revival left behind was hundreds of schools, Christian schools, national colleges uh, that were established, Bible schools, right? So every revival added to the next. So you, you got this, right? You got the hymns that were released, and then you got the structure that was given uh, by the Holy Spirit. And then you've got the, um, the, uh, the teaching, the theology, and then you got the schools, and God was adding layer upon layer. But allow me to share with you as I close the last two years just before the 1904 revival. You know, people are sensing something about to burst. We call it desilience. Hallelujah. That's a big word I learned yesterday. Desilience, <laughs> uh, which means bursting forth. Hallelujah. 1902, home uh, prayer circles started forming all around Wales. Thousands upon thousands of people gathered together with one intention to pray in a worldwide revival. They gathered in groups of trees. And that's the real backstory. You want to know what happened. This is the backstory. Every grand move of God is precipitated by an intense prayer movement. There's no easy shortcuts to this, right? So prayer circles were formed all across Wales, and they are essential because they create desire. 
It's like Anna. Anna is a wonderful, uh, my, my, by the way, my granddaughter is called Anna. Very, very prophetic name. Yeah. Uh, you know, Anna is one of the great unsung heroes of the Bible. After her husband died, she served the Lord in the temple for seven, uh, after seven years. She served the Lord all the way till she was in the 80s. And she, all she did was day and night, night and day, year after year, prayed. She never left the temple. She lived there. And uh, she cried out to the Lord for the coming of the Messiah. And uh, man, you know, God rewarded her by letting her see the salvation of the world. And you know, I tell you this, these are the unsung heroes of the Bible. They're going to have the highest thrones in heaven. We don't know what the backstory is oftentimes, but that's the backstory. There are people that paid a price for, so that we could have a better future. Amen. I tell you, this is so wonderful. There can be no revival without prayer. By 1903, there was this swell of, of excitement and, and God was doing something. And then the pastors suddenly started preaching the cross. They started preaching the necessity of coming back to the cross. And I tell you this, we have to return to the simplicity of the cross of Calvary. We've got to learn how to bear our cross, take up our cross and follow Him. And all this, my friends, was building up. It was building up and, and uh, to the greatest outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And some many historians say, since the book of Acts, the Welsh revival. But there was still one thing that was missing. And that was the man. It was the man. And the story of the revival cannot be complete without telling you the story of Seth Joshua. He was a powerful preacher. And uh, he wanted to see a, a revival in Wales. And he was, a, he was a prayer warrior. And he would cry day after night, Lord, give me Wales, give me Wales, give me Wales. And one day the Holy Spirit said to him, Seth, you're not the man that I have chosen. But I want you to pray in the man. And he said, Lord, if I'm not the man that you have chosen, then choose a man from the coal mines of Wales. Choose somebody who is a nobody. Don't choose a man from the hallowed halls of Oxford or Cambridge so that everybody will know that when this revival comes, it is God. And I tell you, God can take a nobody and use that nobody and make him a somebody in front of everybody so that everybody will know it's God. Seth Joshua, three weeks after he prayed that prayer, was in a church in Blananak. And we've been there before. And he was preaching on a subject, bend, bend us, O Lord. What he did not know in that meeting was the young man who was going to lead the revival was sitting right in the front row. His name was Evan Roberts, a coal miner, 26-year-old boy. And as Seth, Rogers, Seth Joshua was preaching, the Spirit of God came so strongly on this young man. He stood up in the service and cried out, Bend me, Lord! Bend me, Lord! And that, my friends, is how you get revival. It's when hearts are broken. It's when men and women lay a hold of God. It's when men and women say, God, we need you more than life itself. We need you more than the breath that we breathe. I want to ask you, Cornerstone, I believe with all my heart, do you want revival? Do you want revival? I know some of you will get this. Some of you might feel, wow, this is so intense. But I'm telling you this, this is our destiny. This is what God has called us for. Revival, revival. And I'm giving you a pattern of how things were done in the Welsh revival so that we have a working model, a working expression 
of somehow maybe developing some of these things and Holy Spirit will enlighten us. So I want to ask you just to pray with me. I want to ask you to take about a minute. So just pray in tongues. Hallelujah. Pray in the Spirit wherever you are in your rooms right now. Cry out to God. Hallelujah. Say, God, I want to see this happen, Lord. I may not have a heart burning for revival, but God, I'm willing to be made willing, Lord. I'm willing to allow you, Holy Spirit, to do something in my heart right now. I'm willing, Lord, for you to break my heart, Lord. I'm willing for you to do and tenderize my heart, God. I'm willing for you to change me, oh God. Come on. Pray. Keep your eye on Jesus right now. Hallelujah. Ask Him. I don't know if there's any, I don't know whether there's something called the Spirit of Revival, but if it, there is, Lord, then we're asking you, let the Spirit of Revival be upon this church. Revive us again, Lord, so that your people may rejoice in you. Oh, Lord, hallelujah. Send revival. Send revival fire. Let blood and fire be our slogan, Lord. Blood and fire. Hallelujah. Oh, teach us the old ways, the ancient paths, Lord. Teach us the old paths, Lord. Hallelujah. Oh, God, teach us the old stories, Lord, of revival. Connect us with the cloud of witnesses, oh, God. Hallelujah watching. I know that there are clouds of witnesses of people watching the service Lord right now from heaven and I just sense something of amazing magnitude is going to be released in the spirit right now in Jesus name Shandaraba. I decree it, I declare it right now over the over our, our community of people. One song we worship him. listen to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.